The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 25th day of April 2021. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always, and he's right across the way. Got a great show lined up for you tonight. Up first, we'll talk to the great defenseman, Hockey Hall of Famer, Brad Park. In the second half, we'll change gears totally and welcome in the longtime drummer for Foghat, fellow Long Islander, Roger Earl. So just sit back, relax, enjoy Sports Talk 12, uh, Sports Talk New York. I'm still not used to that, folks. I'm sorry. On WGBB, we got some great people, some great stories up ahead. Our first guest, he was a defenseman. He played in the NHL for the Rangers, the Bruins, the Red Wings. Always considered one of the best defensemen of his generation. Uh, sometimes played in the shadow, though, of the great Bobby Orr, who was briefly his teammate, by the way. Elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1988, and in 2017, he was named one of the 100 greatest NHL players in history. He's a hero of my youth, and when you're in the street with the orange Milek ball uh, playing street hockey, I was Brad Park. But if that orange ball hits you, man, that, that thing hurt, by the way. The real pleasure and an honor to welcome to the show tonight, Brad Park. Brad, good evening. Hey, Bill. How are you? Oh, it's great. Great to have you with us. Now, Brad, I want to start off by telling you my dad used to take me over to Skateland, over in New Hyde Park, to watch practices. And one day it was a Catholic school holiday, so there were no other kids around. And I tell you... It was like shooting fish in a barrel. I got all you guys on my little notepad that I carried with me. I knew everybody's face from pouring over the blue book. I got the cat, the gag line, Stemmer, uh, Irvin, Bruce Fairburn, Walter Kachuk, the, the, the chief, Sealing Rousseau, McGregor, Eddie and, and, uh, Jills, and I'll never forget that day. Remember the days at Skateland? Oh, absolutely! It was uh, where uh, when I broke in. That's where the Rangers practiced. Yeah, it was until a number a number of years later that we we moved back uh, out to Long Beach. But uh, Skateland was a an interesting rink because uh, it it wasn't the best ice. No, <laughs> it was a little it was a little bumpy and wavy at times, and the boards weren't always perpendicular. Oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> it, it wasn't a, a new facility. That's for sure, Brad. I remember that. Now, who were your sports heroes back when you were a kid, Brad? Well, I kind of grew up. I grew up in Toronto, so I was a big Maple Leaf fan. And you know, growing up, uh, uh, you know, in the fifties, it was like guys like Teeter Kennedy, and uh, I did play with Sillaps Jr. Oh yeah, uh, his father is a, you know a great player for the, the Leafs uh, and captain of the Leafs. Uh, but during the sixties, was probably watching guys like Davey Keon. And, Tim Horton, Carl Brewer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Ronnie Stewart, who was with the Rangers when right. I broke in. Yeah. Remember, you know, watching him. So, uh, you know, I was kind of a Leafs fan growing up. Gotcha, yeah, and rightfully so. Now, you became the Rangers' best uh, defenseman. Y- you drew a lot of comparisons, as we said, with Bobby Orr. Both of you guys uh, really revolutionized the offensive defenseman. How would how would you describe your your style of playing D? Well, I think uh, my style was basically based on three guys uh, that I saw during uh, playing junior in Toronto. Uh, one was uh, Tim Horton, who would lug the puck and he would make a deke in order to make a good pass. Uh, a guy by the name of Bobby Bond, who was such a hard nosed, clean hitter. Mm-hmm. And then I loved J.C. Trombley for the Montreal Canadiens who was a magician with the puck. So those were guys that, you know, I watched and I learned from. And when I got to New York, uh, uh, Emil Francis was good enough when I started to jump into the rush of not pulling me back. And, uh, you know, you have to remember, you know, I wasn't a defenseman until when I was about 15 years old. I was a forward. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Okay. Now, in 72, uh, Jean Rattel breaks his ankle. You lead the team uh, against the defending champs, the Montreal Canadiens, in the first round of the playoffs. You That was the year you go to the finals, and you lost to Boston, and uh, you finished runner-up for the Norris Trophy that year. Tell us about that, making it to the Stanley Cup finals that year. Well, I think that, you know, in the early 60s, the Bruins and the Rangers were the two worst teams in the league. And by the time we got to the late 60s and starting around 1970, we, we became the two best teams right. in the National Hockey League. And uh, the New York-Boston rivalry was at its peak, you know, because you had the Red Sox and the Yankees, the, the Knicks and the Celtics. So uh, the Bruins and the Rangers uh, disliked each other tremendously. So getting into the finals against Boston, you know, was something that, uh, you know, we craved for and we got there that, you know, we, uh, we, we were ready for. Yeah. And, uh, th- as you say, Brad, great rivals with, with the Boston Bruins with Johnny Busick, of course, or Johnny Pye McKenzie, Derek Sanderson. They had their own bunch of guys like you did and uh, matched up pretty well. Now, I want to ask you about the 72 Summit Series. Now, Orr wasn't able to play. He was injured. So you, you come up as a key contributor to uh, Team Canada's series over the Soviets. You were uh, MVP of the deciding game eight, and you were named the best defenseman of the series. How was it playing against the Soviets? You know, the interesting thing was, you know, we didn't know how good they were. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of caught us flat-footed because they were in mid-season form and we weren't in mid-season form. So as the series developed, uh, you know, we're in Canada, we only won one game, lost two, and tied one. And then we went back for four games in Moscow, and it was during the uh, the Cold War. Right. And they, were, uh, they weren't Russians, they were Soviets. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we lost game five, and we ended up having to win the last three games in order to win the series, which we did. And we scored the winning goal in the last game with 34 seconds to go. So uh, the, the thing was that that proved to the NHL that the Europeans could play and compete at the NHL level. Right. That That sure did. Now, I want to talk to you. We're speaking with the great Brad Park, by the way, tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, after opening the 75-76 season, the Rangers not not having much success. They decide to unload some of their veterans, so they send you along with uh, Jean Rattel and Joe Zanussi to the Bruins, a real blockbuster deal at that time, and Esposito and Carol Vadney come to the Rangers. How did you feel about going up to Boston at that time, Brad? Well, first thing I did uh, uh, was when I found out about the deal, I cried. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, I was a Ranger through and through. And, uh, you know, I broke in with the Rangers. I was the captain at that time. I was probably the highest-paid guy. Uh, I was in my prime. I was 27 years old, and I'd never imagined that I would get traded. And to go to the Bruins, who was, you know, like an arch nemesis, it was, right. uh, it, it was such a shock. And, uh, you know, I sat down, and you know, over the course of the day of, uh, you know, the trade happening, uh, I sat there, and I, and I got mad. I said, you know, I'm going to prove the Rangers wrong. And I think John Rattel and I did a very good job of doing that, proving that it was a bad deal for the Rangers. Right. You guys certainly did. You you had some uh, great years along with John uh, for the Bruins. You turned out to be great Bruins. Uh, Emil Francis uh, ended up getting fired eventually uh, during this period. And uh, you, you really took over the mantle of the leadership on Boston from Orr. And, uh, who, who was, uh, injury plagued at the time. And he, he'd soon leave, uh, he went to Chicago, I believe, to, yeah, to the Blackhawks. Now, you, you had great success under Don Cherry, didn't you, Brad? Yeah, Don was a, a very fun guy to play for. Uh, you know, he was very demanding. And, uh, the one thing you didn't do with Don Cherry is you didn't go in the corner and throw snow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you went yeah. in and you punished. And, uh, we probably had the biggest, toughest, meanest team in the National Hockey League at that time. 
and uh, I sure learned how to kill penalties. How would you compare the styles of Emil Francis uh, to Don Cherry, Brad? Well, I think uh, Don Cherry was probably the best motivator, uh, game in and game out, that I'd ever seen. The most organized uh, coach that I ever played for was Emil Francis, Mm -hmm. in that, you know, uh, we would have, uh, going to a game, we'd have three breakout plays, we'd have three four-check systems, and we could... We would end up changing on the bench in the middle of a period. We never had to go into the dress room to, you know, to make a change. We could make a change on, on the fly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was something that I'd never seen before, but that's how well uh, trained and disciplined we were under Emil. Right. A, a great coach, Emil Francis. Now, Don Cherry actually told you to concentrate on your defense. And not to worry about uh, end-to-end rushing, right? Well, he came to me and he, he said, uh, "Look at, I don't know if you looked at our defense, but I got to play your ass off." Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, with that in mind, I don't need you running up the ice on all the rushes. So when you get to the third period, you're tired. What yeah. I need you is to control our half of center ice. And if you can control our half of center ice, if we're in the third period with 10 minutes to go and we're tied or behind, you have a green light to go. And I said, Don, if you're going to play my ass off, I will agree to that. I will stay (laughs) back and stay back and make sure our half of the ice is taken care of and we'll get the puck to the forwards. And, you know, if we're down to 10 minutes to go, I'm, I'm taking off. I'm going. Right. And and he did a great job with that. Now, when you first got to Boston, though, Brad, you were pretty unpopular with the fans, right? Because you were you were an enemy. Yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I used to get a police escort to and from the ice. Oh man, when I was with the Rangers. <laughs> oh boy, and that, I I read a story that you got a flat tire one time, and you hitchhiked a ride from two guys. Uh, oh no, you, you ran out of gas, I think it was, and you gave them free tickets to the next home game, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> as, a, as a matter of fact, uh, my wife drove in and, and, uh, brought the car and as we're pulling out of the garden, I said, honey, there's no gas in the car. There's enough. I said, no, there's no gas. There's enough. So I said, okay. And we drove home and we didn't make it. And it was a snowstorm. And uh, I'm standing outside the car, you know, in the snowstorm. We're out of gas, and these guys come by. And I said, look, I flag them down. I said, we need a ride. I'm out of gas. And I have her and her parents were there, and they gave us a ride there. I think it's, look, give me your name. Give me your phone number. I'm with the, the Bruins, and I'm going to make sure you guys have tickets for the next game. And, and that's what I did. Nice. Nice story. We got Brad Park with us tonight on the program. Now, I want to talk to you about the WHA, Brad. You had a chance to jump there. They, they were offering everybody boatloads of cash. Why did you, you choose to stay in the NHL? Well, uh, I was about three hours from going. Wow. And uh, I had a meeting with Emil Francis, and uh, I told him I have a flight going to Cleveland the next morning. And, uh, you know, in order to keep me, you're going to have to come to this number. And uh, he said, well, I don't want to do it, but I will talk to Bill Jennings, mm-hmm. who's the president of the Rangers. And uh, he ended up calling me. I, I drove home. He called me about an hour, an hour and a half later and said, okay, we got a deal. And uh, the next morning I called Cleveland, told him it wasn't coming. And uh, they upped the deal substantially. Wow. And I said, no, I'm not coming. They said, why not? I said, I gave Emil my word. Mm-hmm. And I ended up staying in New York. Good story. Good story. Yeah, they, they were uh, up and coming. I, I think the team in New York was the Raiders, if I remember correctly. And, yeah, uh, it was the yeah. New York Raiders. The uh, Cleveland was the... The Barons? Uh, was it the Barons? So I ended up going... Almost going there. I was about you know three hours from uh, from heading yeah. to the WHA. Oh boy! Well, in seventy seven, seventy eight, 
you were a key contributor to the Bruins' uh, back-to-back appearances in the Stanley Cup Finals. You lost to the Canadians both times, and friends wanted me to ask you really about the 83 playoffs when you scored that game-winning goal in overtime. Uh, I think you beat the Buffalo Sabres. Do you remember that goal, Brad? Yeah, it was in uh, Game 7. Right. Uh, in 83, and uh, we had to, uh, we were down 3-2 three, three to two going into Buffalo for Game 6, and we ended up winning that game. And we got to Game 7 in the Gardens, and we're, uh, we're losing uh, uh, 2-1. We tied it up uh, 2-2 in the second period. And to this day, nobody knows, nobody remembers that I got the tying goal in that game. Right. And we went into overtime and we had a face off in their end and uh, Barry Peterson, uh, who was a centerman, had a great habit of winning the puck straight through his legs back. And I came back, I made a shot, it got blocked and then it, the puck came spinning out and everybody was down because they tried to block the first shot and I just cranked it and hit the center of the net about a foot below the, the crossbar and that was the winning goal in the, in overtime. A great goal, definitely, yeah. Now, Ray Bork was coming up uh, towards the end of your, your time in Boston, wasn't he? Yeah, Ray Bork got drafted and came into the Bruins in uh, 1979. Right, 1979, and uh, I think he stayed there to 83, I'm not sure. But you, you went on to play with the Red Wings for a while, Brad. Uh, I think you signed there as a free agent. And you won the Bill Masterson Trophy over there. Now, uh, for folks that may not know, the Bill Masterson Trophy trophy is for perseverance uh, in the game of hockey, and you must have been pretty proud of that, Brad. Yeah, I was. I was for a couple of reasons. Number one, well, first of all, going back with Ray Bork, uh, I was his, uh, his mentor for his first four years until I went to Detroit. To Detroit and uh, I was kind of getting phased out and not getting uh, the ice time I wanted in Boston. And Detroit offered me an opportunity and some security for my family. And Detroit hadn't made the playoffs in seven years, and they hadn't made it back-to-back in 17 years. And the two years I was there, we made the playoffs. So uh, making the playoffs those two years in Detroit and uh, winning the Master was, uh, I, I thought, a pretty good way to finish my career. Pretty good, definitely, Brad. I was just uh, received a text from somebody that uh, from my buddy Gary Oventhal that the Cleveland team was the Crusaders. Correct in the WHA. Yeah, I, for some reason I was thinking the Barons, and that, that was uh, another time, another place. Um, yeah, the, Bar- the Barons were uh, uh, the NHL team uh, that ended up there. Right. Uh, okay. After that. We're speaking with Brad Park tonight on the program. Of of all the guys you played with, and I mentioned a bunch of them at the open of the program, Brad, who would you consider your best teammate? Um, probably two guys. Uh, mm-hmm. One was uh, Walter Kachuk, who I broke in with. Right. Uh, you know, in 1968, uh, we broke in together. We became best friends. To this day, we still stay in touch on a regular basis. And Roger Bear, who kind of took me under his wing and uh, showed me exactly how to be a professional and what it took and how to deal with the, not only the press, but the public and, uh, you know, how to make sure you took care of yourself the night before a game. Right. And a fellow Hall of Famer, too. A great Ranger, Roger Bear. Now, we spoke a little bit about Cherry. We spoke a little bit about the cat, Emil Francis. Who's who's the best coach you played for, Brad? Well, I think one of the most interesting guys that I really played for was Harry Sinden. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. I played for him in Team Canada 72. Uh, I played for him. Uh, he took over the Bruins team in, uh, you know, 1979. Uh, he was like Freddie Creighton, even though we were playoff bound. And uh, what I liked about Harry was behind the bench, uh, he was a great motivator. He was very good system-wise. So he kind of covered the ground of Don Cherry and Emil Francis. But he was great at talking on the bench through the game. And 
he would be there and he'd be yelling to guys on the ice. Uh, the guys on the ice couldn't hear him. He'd be, you know, pick him up, pick him up, second guy, second guy, you know, mm-hmm. move it now, move it now. And basically he was calling out what he wanted to happen on the game, but for the benefit of the guys that were on the bench sitting in front of him. So they knew what he wanted, when he wanted. And I thought that was a, an unbelievable great technique for, you know, telling the, the guy sitting there how he wanted him to play if and when they got out there. Right. A, a great point, Brad, definitely. Harry Sinden, I had forgotten all about him, another Hall of Famer. Now, in, in 88, Brad, you, you make it into the Hall of Fame in Toronto, your hometown. Uh, would you have to say that that was your greatest memory uh, through your career? I think, well, I think it was uh, the topper to my hockey career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when I look at things now, is hockey was part of my life, but the ongoing thing in my life is, uh, you know, I'm married to the same woman for 50 years, and I have five kids, and I have seven grandkids, and that's the the biggest part of my life today. And it's the biggest part that I enjoy. Wonderful. Yeah, great, Brad. Great way to, to end our talk. And I just want to tell you, uh, play, play the man. The great book you wrote, I think it was back in 71. I read the heck out of that when I was a kid too. I had the paperback. That's the book, folks. You could look it up. Brad Park, play the man written, uh, along with the hockey maven himself. Stan Fischler, I've had him on the program, Brad. What, what a great hockey mind, Stan Fischler. Yeah, Stan's, uh, Stan's been a great attribute for, you know, the game of hockey and relating it, you know, from, from on the ice to off the ice. And, uh, I have a lot of respect for Stan. We've known each other over the years. And, uh, I did that diary with him. Uh, I wrote a book probably about five, six years ago. It was called, uh, Straight Shooter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, where I really kind of talked the truth about my career. But the one with Stan was a, you know, day-to-day diary uh, through one of the toughest periods of my life, from being a holdout to not signing a contract to what was happening on the ice, et cetera, et cetera. And it uh, actually got me in a lot of trouble with the, uh, the Boston Bruins and their fans. Uh, and I was willing enough to, uh, you know, stand up for what I said during that book. Who has the better fans, Brad? This may get you in trouble, too. <laughs> New York or Boston? You know, I love them both. Okay. I really do. Uh, uh, you know, in New York, uh, let's put it this way. When I walked into Madison Square Gardens or I walked into the Boston Gardens, uh, there was uh, every game, and I mean every game, there was electricity as soon as you walked into the bottom, into the building. Mm-hmm. And when you walked into the building, you just knew, and you just said to yourself, it's going to be a hoot nanny tonight, and I'm going to enjoy every minute of it, and I can honestly say I did. Two great meccas of hockey, definitely, Brad. It's been an honor and a pleasure having you with us tonight, Brad. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday evening to spend some of it with us down here in New York. I wish all the best to you, your family, and thanks again for being with us. All right, you take care. You too. That's Brad Park, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll speak with the longtime drummer for Foghat. We'll take a slow ride with Roger Earl, folks. Stick around. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show.
We are back. We're back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB, and we are in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. Uh, looking back, that was some performance by DeGrom on Friday night. Games like that, when you're a Met fan, are few and far, far between. The, the Mets, uh, and with the, the following game, they lift you up only to slam you to the concrete the next day like they did Saturday. Nice win today, though, and we'll take it, and uh, the Red Sox coming in. But let's switch gears now, keep the memories rolling along. Our next guest, a drummer best known as a member of Foghat, a founding member along with guitarist and vocalist Lonesome Dave, guitarist Rod Price and bassist Tony Stevens. Roger is the only member... Featured in every lineup of the band. What happened? We lost him? All right, we're going to try. <laughs> we have a dial tone, folks. At least we have that. We're going to try to get Roger back with us. Uh, Brian's trying fervently to do that right now. And uh, as I said, we're switching gears tonight, as we do every once in a while. And uh, I think he's got him on the line now. <laughs> and uh, we'll get rock and rollers on. How we doing, Brian? Okay. Let's let's welcome in Roger Earl to the show. Roger, good evening. Oh. How are you, sir? I'm great. Good How man. are you? Good man. Yeah, we're hanging in there. We're we're in Merrick and uh we're trying to survive over here, you know. <laughs> now, Roger, ah, I wanted to you're, ask you actually your your uh, level is down a little bit. Can you hear me all right? Oh, yeah, we, we got you fine. Yeah, no worries. All right, that's that. That's somebody spoke up. Is that hey, you, Bill? That's me. That's me, Roger. Yeah. Hello, Bill. How, how you doing? We're doing good. I, I wanted to ask you, Roger, you were born in Hampton Court. Now, that's near my, my, fa- <laughs> my favorite of the royal palaces. Were you a friend of Cardinal Wolsey's by any chance? Uh, no. No. Not that old. <laughs> not that old. <laughs> so, sometimes... People have mentioned that I was very close to being uh, as old as dirt, but no, I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, it was it was just down the road from uh, Hampton Court where I was born in a place called the Bethed Jewish Memorial Hospital. My mum said it was the most because it was directly after the war. I was born in '46, right? And uh, she said that these people were just wonderful. My other two brothers were born during the war, so that wasn't much fun. Now, I, as I remember, Roger, there used to be a pub right across the street from the palace called the Cardinal Wolsey. Is, do you know if that's still there? Uh, no, because you know I'm a New Yorker now. So, right. Uh, I don't. I don't have anything to do with the Royals or anybody. Good for you, Roger. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> oh, kings and queens. No. Now, now no. we're celebrating fifty years of Fog Hat this year. Now. You you are still banging away like our friend Liberty DeVito says. Old drummers yeah. never die; they just keep on banging, right, Roger? <laughs> Something along those yeah. lines. Uh, what do you think about that, darling? I'm talking to the wife now. Go ahead. Uh, uh, <laughs> old drummer, drummers don't die; they just keep on banging, right? She says, "Wash my mouth out with soap and water." <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> now. <laughs> You were you were in a musical family. Your dad played piano, uh, and uh, yeah. he played in local pubs. There was always music in your house, right, Roger? Yeah. Um, but both my parents came from the East End of London, mm-hmm. so uh, they were always noted for having a good time. A lot of great musicians came from that area. Um, dad wasn't a professional piano player, but he would play weekends. Uh, well, actually, when he when he was very young, um, my aunt is. Uh, younger sister told us that in fact he was actually joined uh, a jazz band when he was like 14 or 15 years old but uh, I didn't know anything about that Um, actually my father was a panel beater, he worked uh, when I was growing up he worked at Aston Martins in their old workshop in Felton which was about four, three or four miles away from where we actually lived near um, uh, Heathrow Airport which was of course pretty tiny back then mm-hmm. but um yeah he loved to play piano and there was always music in the house we were probably one of the first people to have record players uh we had a grunge tape recorder that we would call stuff off the tv we had a 
a big um, projection TV that would shine. We, we had a fairly small house, but one side of the wall would have this projection TV, so uh, there was always music, yeah. Nice. In fact, my father took me to my first real uh, concert when I was 12 years old, took me to see Jerry Lee Lewis. Nice. And my mother said, I was never the same after that. that <laughs> and and where, how did she say it? It addled his brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh yes, I thank my mum and dad I had great parents actually. They were uh, they were terrific. Who who were your early influences on the drums, Roger? Um actually uh let's see, um Francis Clay, who used to play with Muddy Waters. One mm-hmm. of my favourite albums was uh, Muddy Waters Live at the Newport Jazz Festival nineteen sixty one. Um who else? Uh this Clay, the the, uh, the drummer who played on Little Richard's band, um, Earl Palmer, mm-hmm. was a fantastic drummer. Uh, Francis Clay, Earl Palmer, um, Freddie Bilo, who played on all the early uh, chess records with uh, Muddy Waters, uh, Chuck Berry. Um, yeah, that, those three were really. It, for me, it was always about the music. Um, yeah. It was, you know, I mean, uh, one, of, one of the first records I actually bought when I was about eight or nine was um, a jazz at the Philharmonic which featured um, Buddy Rich and uh, a few other people. And I just got hooked on it. But um, I wasn't up to that level. Uh, Buddy Rich was... Um, was special as was Gene Krupa. Uh, that, you know, I could listen to those things, but actually attempting to sort of be like that. Uh, no, it was always the music for me, like blues, R and B music. Uh, you know, jazz, um, but mainly blues and rock and roll. That's what I grew up listening to. Gotcha. Now, tell us a little bit about Roger. You and Lonesome Dave. You're with Savoy Brown. And you left to form Foghat. What, what what brought that on? Tell us about the birth of Foghat. <laughs> uh, well, uh, actually, um, I'm still good friends with Tim Simmons, uh, who is Savoy Brown. Um, in fact, we we've done dates together. Uh, he actually played on our last studio album uh, under the influence. Uh, he played on two or three tracks. Um, in fact, we're working. Uh, we've. Uh, I, talk to the other guys in the band just the other day we're going to work on another new studio album we have our own studio down in florida in the land florida it's in the middle of nowhere sure yeah outside of orlando yeah yeah that's right Mm -hmm. and the rest of the guys live in florida so uh, i like going down there in the winter i'm a snowbird um so we're going to be working on a new album kim simmons hopefully will probably play on some of the tracks with us and we'll have some like guests and uh, uh, where were we? Hold on a second. I need some wine. There Carry we on. go. Yeah. <laughs> now, you, you moved from England to the North Shore. You've been out yeah. here since 1973. Uh, right. You're an avid fisherman, Roger, aren't you? I fish, therefore I am. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> actually, uh, last year with, with the COVID nightmare here, we did our last show in um, Las Vegas at the Golden Nugget. It was in March 13th, I think, and we came home. You know, everything shut down. It was, you know, it was pretty weird. Um, and I got home, so I'm home, and I'm going, uh, what do I do now? So, I, you know, turned over the garden. You know, I've got my fishing rods ready, and I'm fishing out the back door. Because I, you know, I actually live on the sound off of uh, in Easter Talking. right? And you know, I'm I'm catching bat. I didn't catch any uh, bluefish last year. A couple of small, you know, the, the the little ones early on in the year, but caught no bluefish last year. Just stripers. And okay. it was kind of strange because bluefish were like always there. In fact, we lot uh, like in the seven through the seventies and eighties, uh, striped bass almost disappeared, but. Uh, didn't catch one bluefish last year. I don't know if anybody else noticed that there weren't many bluefish around. Maybe I'm not that good a fisherman anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to check the bait, Roger. I guess you got you got to examine that. Uh, yeah, I, I use mostly. 
Actually, I use bait sometimes. You know, I'll go out there, put a chunk of bunker on and sit there with a sandwich and a bottle of wine. Uh, or I fly fish. I, I use lures mostly. Um, I like casting for fish, you know, it sort of sure. gives you something to do. And also it's sort of like, you know, you can sort of, especially uh, around here in the bays and stuff, it's a lot of fun. Right. Um, yeah. Um, first time I, I actually caught a fish, a uh, uh, blue fish was, Back in 68 or 69, I met our, uh, who was our first manager, Tony Oteda, out here on Long Island. He was working, supporting um, the tour that Savoy Brown was on. We became good friends. He said, why don't you come and stay out my parents' house out in Rocky Point, and uh, you can catch some bluefish. I'd never mm-hmm. heard of a bluefish. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the first one I caught uh, was about six or seven pounder, and like started ripping line off uh, my reel and I said this is fun yeah (laughs) I had a lot of of fun to catch do you remember Roger the uh, the era I guess late 70s early 80s when uh, local bands were were really big on Long Island Uh, there was Tui's out by you there in in East Setauket Stony Brook do you remember any of the Long Island bands from that era yeah um Let's see, uh, who did I go to? Yeah, I used to be, was my local hangout. In fact, I just spoke with uh, Joe Basirico, who was uh, one of the owners and managers of Tui's. Uh, I remain good friends with him. He also was our tour manager for, for a while. Um, Stanton Anderson was one band I remember. Probably uh, uh, they used to play, I think, Thursday nights at Tui's. Right. And if I wasn't on the road, I would be down there. Great band. In fact, um, they're still around. They... Uh, we played out here uh, a couple of years ago in um, somewhere out here, in, uh, and they supported us. They were a really good, uh, great band, in fact, great band. Yeah, they still they still have a couple of the original guys. I've seen them recently. How about the Good Rats? Saw the Good Rats many times. Great band, great band, great drummer too. Joe Franco, of course. Yeah, Joe good, Franco. good man. We're speaking of the great Roger Earl tonight on the program. Now, uh, talk about the loss of of uh, Dave, Lonesome Dave. Uh, what he what he meant to Foghat and the loss of Lonesome Dave. Dave was um, a huge part of this band. He was basically the he was the one who would uh, come up with uh, tunes and stuff, and uh, he was the main writer in the band. Um, Dave and, well, Dave, well, Dave and I have left uh, Savoy Brown. Uh, Tony Stevens, who was the bass player with uh, Savoy Brown at the time, got fired, but he joined us in Foghat. But Dave and I just decided to leave. Um, Dave was uh, pretty much the heart and soul of this band. He was the one who always came up with the ideas of doing other songs. Uh, he, was the, he was the main writer. Uh, one of the things that I loved about Dave was even when he was ill, he was always up for playing. When you went on stage, you didn't have to worry about Dave not being there and not doing his part. You see, Polcat was always a band. Mm -hmm. You know, when the four of us would go on stage, it was four people. It wasn't just, you know, a lead singer and his backup band. It was a band. It still is today. Um, And that's the one thing that I really enjoy about you know playing and making music uh it has to be a band for me anyway uh, and you know you share the responsibilities and uh, dave was beautiful he was always ready to play uh he always gave it 110 percent. and even when he was ill he had uh, kidney cancer um he still gave it everything he had and i loved him for that yeah, great loss for sure, Roger. Now, Foghat's always been known as a band uh, that tours relentlessly. You guys are out on the road so much in, until the COVID crap hit. Now, tell us why you guys love to tour. Uh, I'm one of the most. I'm one of the fortunate few on this planet that gets to earn a decent living at something I love doing. Right. So it's yeah. Not really. Not really work for me. Actually, this summer that we had off, thanks to the COVID nightmare, I said to a couple of people, I said, "This is weird. I'm really having a good time uh, because you know it was just myself and my wife Linda. Everybody else couldn't come here. Even the kids wouldn't come over, and it was 
probably the first time I'd had a summer off since I was 12 years old. I was always working or playing. Right. And uh, I had a great time. Um, I would uh, go fishing, work in the garden, uh, ride my bike, go for walks. It was, um, I almost started getting lazy. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I enjoyed it. But, yeah, um, I love work. We get, we've already done one date this year. Uh, we did a show out at a casino in uh, Michigan. Uh, normally the venue holds like, over 2,000 people, but they reduced it to 650, just their VIPs or whatever. And um, we, re- we went down to the studio down in Florida uh, for two weeks. We rehearsed uh, two days and had three days off. Rehearsed two days, had a couple of days off. Rehearsed one day just to get back into it. I mean, I play regularly. I, I, I practice every just every day, every other day. Um, it was great. Uh, everybody was uh, jumping at the bit to sort of come back and play. Um, I, I actually play in a great band. They're all great musicians, uh, and we're we're friends as well. It's, uh, that like, helps. Like yeah, a real band. Sounds good. Now your brother Colin, he he uh, <laughs> jo- joins in occasionally, doesn't he? Yeah, not anymore. In fact, I talked to him today because um, we're going to be working on a, a, new, a new studio album, and there was a song that he'd written a number of years ago. Uh, it was, uh, and um, I talked to him about it, and I said, "You want to come over and play piano?" And he said. No, he, he had a stroke uh, four or five years ago, and oh. that sort of messed his right hand, his right hand up. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, that was rather sad. And also because of the COVID nightmare, he couldn't come over here and see us. Um, that you can't do much in England at the moment. It's it's all lo- on lockdown. Still, my oldest right. uh, daughter lives there, and my granddaughter, and they said it's it's still pretty bad there. Now the the hits that Fog had. Uh, has had throughout the years, Roger. Who who yeah. wrote those? Um, Lonesome Dave uh, was credited with writing most of the stuff, but uh, when it came to arranging and whatever we did, it was always a band thing. Uh, we were always and and or our producer, probably Nick Jameson, um, should have got credit for uh, writing uh, Slow Ride, certainly, uh, and. Uh, a few other tunes, but it was um, the band always, all, uh, you know, arranged everything and played everything. But Dave was the main uh, lyric; he wrote the lyrics. Gotcha. Okay, now I wrote some as well, actually. Of course, you did. Huh? Yeah. Of course, I did. <laughs> if there were, if there was any lyrics with uh, references to cars, um, Dave would talk to me. Dave didn't drive. Dave would say, "I remember we were writing um, Road Fever." He said. What sort of things can we put in there, uh, Rog, you know, like about, you know, talking about driving. So I remember one from my grandfather, which was uh, Stir the Sticks. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandfather would, would always tell my father to give it the gun, <laughs> <laughs> which meant go go faster, obviously. Sure. Uh, but, but I remember that from when I was a kid. I'd be sitting on in the front seat with my grandfather, and he'd say, give it the gun. We're speaking with the great Roger Earl of Foghat tonight on the program. Now, there's a project you guys uh, have called Eight Days on the Road. You recorded that at Daryl's house. People may not know that's uh, the club owned by Daryl Hall. It's up in Pauling, New York, near Brewster. Yeah. Uh, Did uh, Daryl join you at any point? No. uh, No, okay. No, uh, I haven't. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Daryl. Uh, he's made some great records. Has a great voice too. Sure. Um, but there, what what happened was uh, we were doing like a, a four day run uh, in a sprinter because normally we sort of fly everywhere. Um, and my uh, brother in law, who's our driver and also uh, part time, uh, he does everything. Actually, couldn't couldn't work without him. Um, we were supposed to play in a theater up there, but they had issues with the theater, noise issues. So they, they, they weren't doing any more shows there. And we said, well, 
uh, someone else to play. And they said, well, they, the people also owned or were involved with Daryl's house club. They said, do you want to play there? Normally we don't play clubs. We said, yeah, we got there and um, they have a uh, fantastic recording studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we said, okay, we recorded that night. We didn't know we were going to re- be recording. And um, it turned out great. Uh, the film, and we filmed it as well, so we have a DVD. Uh, we also have, we're also making, uh, vinyl as well, which would be a double, uh, vinyl, because uh, I think it's about an hour and 35, hour and 40 minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we were, um, it turned out great. The sound is fantastic. And, um, yeah, um, I was really proud of it. I was, I really enjoyed it. So it took well, a while to get it all done. Yeah, the manager well, um, did all the artwork. So, in fact, I think she just finished it yesterday. The artwork and sent it off. It should be released, I believe, July sixteenth um, for the CD and the DVD. And I think the vinyl will either be released at the same time or a month later. So, uh, yeah, that's coming out this year. July there you 16th. go, folks. Yeah, eight we'll look forward to that. Road. It's more yep. like eight thousand days on the road. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it, right, Roger? Yeah, <laughs> eight hundred thousand days on the road. That's all right. That's all right. Now we Life spoke. We spoke a little earlier, Roger, about wine. And you guys have become involved with the wine business. Uh, you have what's called Fog Hat Sellers. We have Fog Hat Sellers. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Roger's imbibing as we speak here. Yeah, yeah I'm imbibing. I have a nice wine here. Actually, wine was probably always... Uh, Fog had uh, beverage of choice, I think. Um, though we did imbibe with others, we we tried everything, that, you know, that there was out there. Um, now, what, wine. Uh, what happened was we were we uh, back in nineteen. What is it? Uh, ninety some somewhere around there. Nine, no, nineteen. I can't remember. Anyway, we played two sold out shows at the. Uh, California State Fair mm-hmm. and uh, a winemaker by the name of Steve Bratsmussen came to see us and he said uh, and it, after we played there he sent a, uh, an email to our manager and said would you be interested in making wine so I started giggling and said yeah yes please <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh, that, that was the start of a beautiful friendship and uh, you guys are involved in in really every aspect. You, you pick the grapes, you design the labels, right? right? Yes. Uh, yeah, we didn't just want to, you know, have like uh, you know, a photo up or whatever. Um, now we, uh, Linda and I went down there to actually all the all our grapes and wine comes from the central coast of California, mm-hmm. and uh, we went out there after we. Sort of talked to Steve Rasmussen. Linda and I went out there, and, we, and Steve took us around all the vineyards and pe- he that he works with. And uh, he also has two mobile bottling units, so he goes up and down, you know, the West Coast, uh, bottling other people's wine. So um, he was very involved with just about everybody out there. They all knew who he was, and um, we spent a, uh, spent about a week or two out there with him then, and. Then we did our our first wine, which was uh, a 2005 Cabernet Sauvignon. I think we made uh, 50 cases. They all went. I've got one case left, mm-hmm. and that was uh, something. And then we uh, produced a 2010 uh, Pinot and a 2010 Chardonnay, uh, which, in fact, we actually made, and you know. And then now we just have a 2013 Pinot Noir. We have a 2014 Chardonnay. They both come from Monterey County. And we have a 2012 Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, no, we don't. Actually, we've got one case left, and I'm keeping that. That's attaboy, yeah. <laughs> and so we, have, we, were, we wanted to go out there last year, but, of course, it was impossible. So uh, we're probably not going to sort of make any more until... 
Uh, actually, I want to get, I want to concentrate on, um, playing this year, but probably next year we'll, uh, start looking to, uh, make another, uh, batch of wine. Nice. Okay, Roger. Yeah. Well, we thank yeah. you for being with us tonight. That's Roger Earl from Foghat. T- thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night. Yeah, so uh, I'm a sports program. Yeah, we're normally sports. Once in a while I branch out and bring on a rocker, though. Well, okay. Well, can't we talk a little bit about sports? Uh, well, we got about two minutes. Who, who do okay. you who do you support, yeah. Roger? There's only one team in London, Arsenal. And oh, and, and, and I'm also a Yankees fan. So there, that that's enough of that. You're zero for two for, with me, Roger. No, I'm I'm a Liverpool supporter and a Met fan. So well, we that's don't... right. My my <laughs> oldest daughter is a Liverpool supporter. When I was growing up, my grandfather supported. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur. My father supported West Ham uh, oh. because he came from the East End of London. And my older brother, Colin, who's four years older than me, supported Arsenal. So it was pretty interesting in the Earl house. Oh, boy. But um, I'm a long-time Arsenal fan, and there's only one team in London. That's it. All right, Roger. Well, I want to wish you a happy birthday, too, coming up in May. And uh, thanks yeah, again for being with us. It was a pleasure talking to you, Bill, and thank you very much. Take Stay care. Out there. You too, Roger. That's Bye-bye. Roger Earl from Foghat, folks. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Brad Park and Roger Earl, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. See you next on May 9th with the great Rod Carew and the New York Post, Mike Puma. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.